This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. We started the Simpson Duval series in 1982, which makes this either the 36th or 37th uh, lecture in this long-standing tradition at uh, Whitworth. And we do it to honor two of Whitworth's giants, Dr. Clem Simpson and Dr. Fenton Duvall. Those two individuals gave shape to much of what still Whitworth students experience today. Dr. Simpson served from 1953 to 1980 in the English department, and Dr. Duvall taught here from 1949 until 1981 in the history department. Together, they, they really were the creators of the core curriculum. They developed some of the first overseas study programs and inspired really generations of students to study the humanities at Whitworth. Together, they represent, I think not just in my opinion, but in most people's opinion, the very best of Whitworth's commitment to a Christian liberal arts education. I still meet alums, some maybe even in the audience this evening, who say that their lives were changed by the teaching they received from Drs. Simpson and Duval. We do have a Duval Hall, and we should have a Simpson Hall. So uh, hopefully before too long, again, uh, we will honor um, in an appropriate way Dr. Simpson as well as uh, Duval. I know they would be very, very pleased with tonight's speaker, Professor Mark Noel. Dr. Noel is the Francis A. McEnany Professor of History Emeritus at the University of Notre Dame. He earned a bachelor's degree in English from Wheaton College, a master's in comparative literature at the University of Iowa, master's in church history from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and his PhD in American Religious History at Vanderbilt University. For 27 years, he taught in the history department at Wheaton College, and for another 10 years, he taught at the University of Notre Dame before retiring in 2016. He has been the recipient of numerous fellowships and awards, including being named by Time Magazine to be among the 25 most influential evangelicals in America in 2005. He has authored more than 20 books. I'll just give a sampling, and we do have uh, three books available for sale uh, after tonight's lecture that he would be glad to sign if you purchase a copy. Among those, uh, in the beginning was the word, the Bible, in American public life, 1492 to 1783. God and race in American politics, a short history. America's God, from Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln. A History of Christianity in the United States and Canada, and a book that maybe many of you are familiar with, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. It would not be an overstatement to say that Mark Knoll has both inspired a generation of scholars regarding American religious history as well as played a major role in shaping the discussions around the ways in which ideas regarding God, the Bible, Christianity have played in, again, shaping American politics and culture. Forty years ago, these issues were largely absent in the study of American history and culture. But Professor Knoll, along with his colleagues, George Marsden, Nathan Hatch, and others, changed all of that. Mark Knoll's ability to make more complex what we generally assume is simple is a wonderful gift. Mark Knoll's ability to make more understandable what is terribly complex is also a great gift. Tonight, Professor Knoll will try to help us understand one of the most important elements in American religious culture, evangelicalism. And the title is Evangelicalism for Better or Worse. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Mark Knoll. I'd like to thank Dale for a very kind uh, introduction, but also I, I need to start by saying what a distinct and unusual honor it is for me to give this lecture at Whitworth. I owe a very great deal to a former Whitworth provost, Kenneth Ships, who in effect got me started in academic life quite a few years ago in a different college far, far away. I've got great... I got my light on. Just... 
the soft-spoken historians, you know. <laughs> How are we doing? Better? Ken Ships was the provost here. He got me started. He was a wonderful mentor. I've got great respect for a later chief academic officer at Whitworth, Michael Leroy, who was a treasured colleague at Wheaton College and a fellow church member before he returned to Whitworth. And then I would have used to say lost to academic life, but now I want to say gone on to greater service as president of Calvin. I've greatly benefited from the historical writings of several members of your faculty. I consider the life of C. Davis Weyerhaeuser a, a longtime stalwart on the Whitworth Board of Trustees as an absolute ideal for a far-sighted Christian businessman. And we've had several students from the western suburbs, from Wheaton College and our church, come to Whitworth, and their response back about what they've experienced is kind of dismally positive altogether. We want some variety sometimes when people go to college, but they, they really appreciated the education they received here. So tonight, evangelical Christianity for better and for worse. It's not a shocking revelation, not an unexpected news flash to say that the word evangelical and the groups designated by that word are in trouble. Ever since Donald Trump emerged as a major player in American political life, pollsters and pundits have fixated on the overwhelming support he has received from a constituency often simply called evangelicals, or people pause for breath, it's white evangelicals. It's very well known that various polls tracking the presidential election of 2016 announced that Trump won 81% of the evangelical vote, and subsequent polls show that this same constituency has approved President Trump's deeds in office with just about that same stratospheric majority. Spokesmen and women for the 81% have called Donald Trump Cyrus. With reference to a notable figure in the Old Testament, this ancient Persian king was not part of the Hebrew chosen people, yet Yahweh nonetheless enlisted Cyrus to protect Israel and its interests. Just a month ago, on August 27th, at a formal White House dinner for over 100 evangelical leaders, Ralph Reed detailed some of the reasons for that white evangelical support. Reed, formerly the first executive director of the Christian Coalition, and now the chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, said that evangelicals have a tremendous amount of appreciation and gratitude for President Trump and his administration, specifically, and this now is a quotation, for making religious freedom, the sanctity of life, support for the state of Israel, and many other public policy concerns such high priorities. The impact of evangelical voices like Reed has been magnified many times over not least because of President Trump's frequent appearances on the Trinity Broadcast Television Network, which is the largest Christian television network in the United States. Yet, expressions of affirmation from evangelicals who back Trump have been matched in fervor, though not in quantity, by cries of anguish from other corners of the evangelical world. Some individuals who were once entirely willing to be called evangelicals have published a wave of books, articles, and blog posts with titles like Still Evangelical? Ten Insiders Reconsider Political, Social, and Theological Meaning, or Why I Can No Longer Call Myself an Evangelical Republican, or The Unlikely Crack-Up of Evangelicalism, or Polls Show Evangelical Support Trump, but the term evangelical has become meaningless. It was no surprise that some evangelical leaders who were not present at the White House on August 27th expressed opinions about the current American situation that differed considerably from those who were invited to the presidential dinner. Michael Horton of Westminster Theological Seminary, California, for example, responded specifically to President Trump telling the assembled evangelical leaders that you're one election away losing everything you've got. Horton wasn't buying it. Anyone who believes, he wrote, 
much less preaches that evangelical Christians are one election away from losing everything in November, has forgotten how to sing the psalmist's warning from Psalm 146, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. Yet not entirely lost in the superheated ideological cauldron of American political punditry has been another salient fact. That important fact makes questions about evangelicalism much more ambiguous and much more interesting than the media hype would lead us to believe. Here's the fact. The very high level of white evangelical support for Donald Trump is like nothing seen in America's recent religious political history except for the even higher percentage of support that Bible-believing African-Americans have given to Democrats since the 1960s. To mention this other exceedingly strong religious political connection immediately spotlights why the word evangelical is in trouble. For much of post-war American polling, George Gallup identified evangelicals who said they were born again or had had a born-again experience. Yet, if significant numbers of born-again and Bible-believing African-Americans have been voting for Democrats, higher proportions, longer period of time than white evangelicals have voted for Republicans, then how could anyone speak responsibly about evangelical support for Donald Trump without serious qualifications? Tonight's lecture, I'd like first to attempt a definition of evangelical and evangelicalism that might help answer questions like, how can white Americans and African Americans share so much in their personal religion, yet differ so drastically in their political allegiance? Then on the basis of that definition, I'd like to complicate what we think we know about evangelical Christianity by examining a few specific issues where contemporary publicity has jumped to conclusions about the supposedly exclusive evangelical position. But my major task tonight will be to address directly the question of American evangelicals for better and or for worse. If, as I hope to show, there's great complexity involved in defining evangelicalism and even greater complexity in understanding American evangelical history, then what should a final assessment look like? You're all college students or in a college environment, so you're not going to let me tell you what you should think, but you've paid your admission price, so I've, I've got to try to tell you what and why I think. So first, definition, then some historical complexity, and finally, answering the question for better or for worse. Standard definitions of evangelical Christianity stress, stress patterns of belief and behavior that have remained especially strong among Protestants since the 18th century. The best overall definition has been provided by the British historian David Bebbington, who highlights four characteristics. Evangelicals usually stress the importance of conversion to Christ. They always treat the Bible as their highest religious authority. They lay special stress on the work of Christ on the cross as a key to their religion, and they expect believers to be active in living out the Christian life especially in sharing the gospel message. Historically, however, one more quality has been supremely important. Evangelicals have insisted upon the personal character of their Christian faith. The necessity for Christianity to be experienced personally, understood personally, and acted upon personally. That personal emphasis is the scarlet thread running through the songs and hymns that are the heart of evangelical worship. When I surveyed the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, oh, for a thousand tongue to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Rock of ages, cleft for me. What a friend we have in Jesus. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Here I am, down on my knees again, surrendering all. And I was privileged to attend chapel this morning and heard something like, Jesus, fill my heart in one of the songs that was sung. 
This personal element received unusual stress from George Whitfield, the riveting 18th century itinerant evangelist who did more than any other single figure to propel the evangelical movements of his day in the English-speaking world. Whitfield was such an impressive public speaker that the actor, the great actor David Garrick, supposedly said, at least it's a good story, that Whitfield could make grown men merely by pronouncing the word Mephistopheles. <laughs> or maybe it was Mesopotamia, some, some one word. So on one of his first trips to New England in September 1740, this young Anglican itinerant was taken to task by his fellow Anglicans among the Boston clergy. They were concerned because Whitfield was willing to preach in all sorts of churches and to sustain fellowship with Baptists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and others whom the Boston Anglicans did not consider true followers of Jesus because their church organization was faulty. Whitfield, in reply, disagreed. He said, I saw regenerate souls among the Baptists, among the Presbyterians, among the Independents, and among the Anglican folks, all children of God, and yet all born again in a different way of worship. And who can tell which is the most evangelical? Whitfield was insisting that this personal sense of renewal in Christ was the critical element in a religion of the gospel. And the gospel, as I'm sure everyone here knows, is only the Anglo-Saxon word for what in the New Testament reads as euangelion, the evangel, evangelical. Once the centrality of personal Christian faith is kept in view as the key to evangelical Christianity, it is much easier to see why evangelicals might differ so dramatically over specific church practices, over doctrines, over political or social convictions, over scientific and academic questions, and much, much more. And consider one more difficulty in coming up with a precise and proper definition of evangelicalism. In past centuries, evangelical beliefs and practices have flourished almost exclusively within Protestant churches. In fact, for a very long time, evangelical and anti-Catholic were equivalent terms and were actually used, or equivalents of them, uh, synonymously. But no longer. Beginning with the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s and growing stronger year by year, the number of Catholics who look a lot like evangelicals has continued to grow. In the mid-1990s, the Canadian pollster Angus Reid carried out an extensive survey of 3,000 Canadians and 3,000 Americans. The survey included many questions about religion, including four questions concentrating on the qualities that David Bebbington had defined as designated evangelicals, conversion, Bible, cross of Christ, activity in the Christian faith, including evangelism. Of those who responded most positively, most positively to those four questions, focusing on key evangelical terms and traits, about one-sixth of the Americans and one-fourth of the Canadians were Roman Catholics. It was fun to come from Wheaton College, the University of Notre Dame, and I visited, of course, many times, and I sort of knew what I was going to find, but uh, one of the interesting experiences was to begin talking to undergraduates, and uh, in some cases, talking at a real extended period before I could guess where they came down in church life. And sometimes I guessed wrong, because the more ardent, evangelistic, Holy Spirit people might just as easily be Catholics as Protestants. Now, got to fill it in because academics can have to, of course, do details. The courses I taught tended not to be the courses that people who were at Notre Dame for football enrolled in. So, so, so I had a selected audience. But, but certainly, um, you know, 5 to 10% of the Notre Dame Catholic undergraduates look like evangelicals, talk like evangelicals, respond like evangelicals. And this would, would not have been the case uh, two generations ago. What George Whitfield saw in the revivals of his own day but could much more easily evoke than define is spread throughout the world in variations beyond his imagination and even today in Catholic varieties. These countless variations of personally appropriate, appropriated and personally engaged Christian faith will what will eventually determine the boundaries 
acceptable ambiguities, evolutionary byways, and indeed the survival of evangelicalism in the days and years ahead, and not simply the vagaries of American political development. But if a historically well-grounded definition of evangelicalism rightly stresses the importance of personally appropriated Christian faith, what are the implications? As a Christian historian, I think it's necessary to say something positive, but also something negative. Put positively, evangelical emphases have bestowed incredible dynamism on Christian movements. When evangelical lives are redirected and re-energized by experiencing the forgiveness of sin through the work of Christ and then the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the Christian can become, the Christianity can become more compelling. George Whitfield was the most effective public speaker of his day. Billy Graham in our lifetime was likewise one of the most effective public communicators in the globe. When evangelical experience takes hold, it can exhibit great resilience. Almost all of the recent marvels in the recent history of Christianity in China are one degree or another related to the result of evangelical dedication. When evangelical faith comes alive, it can become more socially alert. We can't have a lecture on the history of evangelicalism without mentioning William Wilberforce and what he and his evangelical colleagues with other associates did in bringing about an end to the British slave trade and then to slavery in the British Empire. But there's also a not so positive. Christian movements are evangelical because of how much they stress personal relationship with Christ. But what that stress often, but with that stress often comes a bias against inherited institution, a disdain for elites, and a suspicion of tradition because inherited institutions, elites, and tradition are all thought to deaden the sense of personal communion with God. As a result, evangelical movements have been extraordinarily flexible in relationship to intellectual questions, political convictions, economic structures, gender relationships, and much more. Evangelicals usually don't deny the importance of these spheres of life, but they are much less important than personal faith. Evangelicals have embraced modified, discarded, or transformed intellectual, political, economic, gender, and other issues with great abandon. Sometimes a good effect, sometimes not. In some, evangelical faith by itself implies almost nothing about attitudes toward politics, institutions, cultures, history, music, and more. Of course, how the word is being used today in the popular press belies that reality. But that sets up the question of contemporary complexity. The fluidity of evangelical self-definition, where personal faith is a key to evangelical identity, goes a long way to explaining many of the conundrums of our day that show up if we peer beneath the surface of popular stereotypes. So, do a majority of white evangelicals support President Trump? Yes. But so have many of the most trenchant critics of Donald Trump been evangelicals, like Senator Ben Sass. And here, you know, I, I don't get close to famous people very often, but my daughter went to church with Ben Sass at a conservative evangelical church in New Haven for at least a little while because that was his ecclesiastical choice. Michael Gerson and Pete Wehner, conservative Republicans who worked for George W. Bush, have been also among the most articulate critics of President Trump. Do many white evangelicals doubt the science between, behind climate change? Yes. But so have evangelicals like Calvin DeWitt, been leaders in promoting environmental stewardship. He's the co-founder of the Evangelical Environmental Network. And as described in a 2012 book by Catherine Wilkinson, Between God and Green, quite a few other evangelicals have joined Calvin DeWitt in promoting a long-term responsible approach to the environment. And if you don't get knocked out by a history lecture tonight, I think you should come tomorrow and hear Ruth the Boris Padilla talk about responsible Christian attitudes toward creation. I'm sure Whitworth students are just gluttons for evening lectures. 
Do many white evangelicals advocate creation science and reject evolution as essentially godless? Yes. But so have many well-known evangelicals like Francis Collins, director of the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, and a key leader in the Human Genome Project, explained in considerable detail how a Bible-believing, born-again Christian can be a practicing evolutionist. Evangelicals do sponsor the Creation Science Museum and the Noah's Ark Park that insists on a recent date for the creation and the reality of a worldwide flood, but evangelicals are the key figures in BioLogos, an organization of PhD scientists who also explain how Bible-believing Christians can practice conventional evolutionary science. Again, do some white evangelicals express extreme suspicion of immigrants and undocumented aliens? Yes. But so have evangelical agencies like World Relief and the National Association of Evangelicals been leaders in welcoming, settling, educating, and supporting immigrants from all corners of the globe, and have been doing so for many decades. So also have evangelical scholars like Daniel Carroll Rodas published important books to explain why churches should take the lead in welcoming refugees and other strangers. Do a few of Donald Trump's white evangelical supporters sound an awful lot like unrepentant white nationalists? Yes. But so have other evangelicals like Mark Gornick in New York City shown how important non-white ethnic congregations have become for the future of Christianity in the United States. Gornick's eye-opening book from 2011, Word Made Global, documented where at the time more than 150, 150 congregations in New York City that had been established in recent years by African expats. And they were exercising a Christian witness of extraordinary vitality in the supposed center of American secular life. These contemporary complexities could be multiplied almost without number. I'm tempted as a historian to run you through the centuries, but I've got to stick closer to the present. But I think I've said enough to show that any responsible discussion of even American evangelicals, and not even to think about the, the vast variety of evangelical-like movements throughout the world, should slow down, try to avoid stereotypes. Above all, it's imperative to remember that evangelical Christianity designates a particular expression of the Christian religion. And since that expression of Christianity has historically referred first and foremost to religious beliefs and religious practices, there should be no looping to, leaping to conclusions about the political, cultural, social, or intellectual meaning of evangelicalism. But having clarified questions of definition, having pushed back against simplistic stereotypes, we still have to face the question for better or for worse. Given the checkered history of American evangelicals, whether groups or individuals, what should a responsible overall evaluation of American evangelical Christianity look like? Here, I don't think it's possible to do more than just speak for myself. How a fair-minded observer, whether a believer or not, will assess American evangelicals depends on the individual. What I'd like to do with the remainder of this lecture is to explain why I am content, though sometimes with hesitation, to continue to call myself an evangelical. Besides, as my historian friend Ronald Wells is now retired from the history department at Calvin College once wrote, you know, I've written out my letter of resignation to evangelicalism many times, but I don't know where to send it. <laughs> where would you send your letter? You could, you could tell your friends, and that'd be about it. But for someone like myself who concludes that for better outweighs for worse, it's even more important to acknowledge the far for worse than without any excuse. There could be a whole lecture, a whole series of lectures on American evangelical Christianity as simply disastrous for the nation and even more disastrous for the Christian faith. Such an account might, first of all, include several other painful episodes in earlier American history where, as in the present, evangelicals allowed intense periods of political antagonism to crowd out their most basic Christian convictions. In other words, so tonight, 
If you're, if you're thinking, how could any true Christian ever support Donald Trump? Or if you're thinking, how could any true Christian ever denounce Donald Trump? You're in really good company. You're as American as apple pie, because this has happened not all the time, but at significant moments. During the American Revolution, patriotic ministers preached many sermons with conclusions that said, and now I'm quoting from one Pennsylvania clergyman, the cause of America is the cause of Christ. These same evangelicals treated continuing loyalty to Britain as not just a political mistake, but a sinful political mistake. There were not as many loyalists on the other side, but some of them, too, regarded the push for independence as not just wrong, but demonic. In the election of 1800, just pause for a little trivia exercise, the election of 1800, Jefferson Adams, right? Thomas Jefferson challenged the incumbent John Adams. Protestant communities were just as polarized as they have been in recent years. Every day, through September and October of 1800, the Gazette of the United States, a newspaper which supported Adams, ran the same headline. The grand question stated, shall I continue in allegiance to God and a religious president or impiously declare for Jefferson and no God? You get a little tired reading that in your daily paper every day, but they wanted to get the message across. Things got considerably worse in the run-up to the Civil War, and during that war itself, northern evangelicals called southern evangelicals infidels because they broke up the union that God had providentially created in the War for Independence. White southern evangelicals responded even more vigorously. No, you in the north are the infidels, for obviously you disobey the scriptures, where, as any person knows who can read, Abraham, Moses, the Apostle Paul, and Jesus himself never condemned slavery, but actually supported it. These were historical moments when evangelicals like today came to be known more for their political loyalties than for their religious convictions. But evangelicals for the worse includes more. Evangelicals who promoted the Bible defense of slavery used a hermeneutic, methods of interpretation, with many problems. They read the Bible as a kind of moral cookbook or as a contemporary judicial deposition. They relied on the common sense of ordinary people to interpret scripture, but uncritically assumed that their common sense exactly matched the mindset of the biblical authors. They lacked the patience or the interest in what serious study might have shown about the context in which biblical writings were authored. This kind of slipshod approach to Bible interpretation stood behind the biblical defense of slavery, and it actually stood behind some of the biblical attacks on slavery, too. It's responsible, in my view, for the mistake called creation science. This kind of thinking, additionally, was largely responsible for the intellectual wasteland that characterized American evangelicals from the late 19th century until after World War II. And there is more. We could go on and on. But the for better list is, in my mind, nonetheless still more consequential and impressive. And the reason is straightforward. When evangelicals are at their best, they reflect the goodness of God and the goodness of the world that God has created. When evangelicals are at their best, they reflect the power of the Holy Spirit to rescue lives and turn them into paragons of altruism. Above all, when evangelicals are at their best, they reflect the loving mercy of Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. So where and with whom can we find evangelicals like that? I want to begin with Francis Asbury, who in my mind was the most influential leader in all of American religious history. Francis Asbury was a young Methodist in England when in 1771, John Wesley said, I'd like have a few volunteers go to America where the people there need the message of spiritual renewal that the Methodists in England have been promoting. Asbury, Asbury said, I, I will go. He arrived in 1771 when there were three other Methodist ministers and somewhere between 200 and 400 adherents to Methodist cell groups. They really weren't churches by that time. When Asbury died in 1816, there were over 2,000 itinerant Methodist ministers and 200,000 
Americans, members of Methodist churches, about a fourth of them African-American, and maybe double or triple that number that had become uh, associated with Methodist churches. How did Asbury do it? On his horse, every day, from the late, actually the early 1780s, he had to lie low during the American Revolution because John Wesley said, nothing is as dangerous as Republicans who get control. And John Wesley, who people knew what Asbury was associated with, also said, um, why do we hear so many yelps about freedom from a people who have institutionalized slavery? So in other words, John Wesley didn't think the American, American Revolution was justified, and Asbury associated with Wesley, so Asbury had to lie low. But as soon as the war was over, Asbury started traveling. 300,000 miles by the time he died, mostly on horseback, an annual tour of all 13 states, and then 15 states, and then on up into Canada. And, and his message was, he, he followed the admonition he gave to his itinerants. Go into every kitchen and shop, address all, aged and young, on the salvation of their souls. And for our day and age, it's particularly revealing to consider the two occasions on which Asbury met President George Washington. Both times, apparently, he had extended conversations. One time, he recorded in his diary, Bishop Coke and I, the two bishops leaders of the Methodist Church, visited Washington when the capital was in New York City and handed him a message of congratulations from the Methodists. In the same diary entry for that day, he expanded for two or three paragraphs on the evangelistic sermon he had preached in New York City. The second time he met Washington, he didn't even mention it in his diary. And I'm going to tell you a little bit later about my one time I got, well, one, one of the very few times in my life I, I got to meet a president. When I got home, I wrote up 15 pages. <laughs> I, I explained how the waiters put the scrambled eggs on the table of the breakfast. Asbury was concerned about one thing, preaching the gospel, two things, preaching the gospel and organizing groups of followers of Jesus. He represented evangelical Christianity at its best. So also did Harriet Jacobs. Harriet Jacob was the first author by a enslaved female of a narrative of her life, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, published in 1861. Evangelical convictions sustained her, not as a conventional Christian account, but in her devotion and trust in God, even when Christian organizations, Christian teaching, use of the Bible supported her enslavement. She lived for seven years in a nine-foot by seven-foot and three-foot hideaway in the South in order to escape from the rapes and seductions that had been her lot as a slave. And she wrote in a, in a characteristic passage, not evangelical triumphalism, but serious Christian commitment. Sometimes, she wrote, I thought God was a compassionate father who would forgive my sins for the sake of my sufferings. At other times, it seemed to me there was no justice or mercy in the divine government. I asked why the curse of slavery was permitted to exist, and why I had been so persecuted and wrong from youth upward. These things took the shape of mystery, which it is to this day not so clear to my mind as I trust it will be hereafter. I'm interested in, in the uh, incidents of the life of a slave girl, the book that Harry Jacob wrote, because of studying the public use of the Bible in the United States uh, uh, history from the colonial period into the 20th century. Her narrative, which is relatively short, about 100 pages in a modern, fairly large print, is absolutely saturated with the scriptures. There are into the hundreds of direct quotations and scripture allusions. And even when, in her situation, the Bible was used, being used as an instrument of servitude, as an instrument of, of oppression, for her, it was also the ground of her being and the stability for her hope for the future. This was evangelical Christianity at its best. 
Evangelical convictions also motivated Francis Willard, who in the late 19th century became the nation's most effective advocate on behalf of battered women and children. Uh, some of you will have heard of Francis Willard as the longtime dynamic leader of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, WCTU. Um, I ran into her in historical accounts quite, quite early on, and actually in some church movements, but she was presented as a kind of a Victorian straight-laced uh, reformer who just didn't want anybody to have a good time. So she, she was not a, an active or a violent saloon basher. She didn't take her axe and hash it. But she was a campaigner against drink. But as better historical scholarship developed, it, it turns out that she, she was a campaigner against alcoholism and drink, but on behalf of children and neglected wives whose husbands had abused them and who by drink were being taken into to the gutter. Frances Willard cooperated with D.L. Uh, Moody in evangelistic crusades. She was an active promoter of education for men, women, and children. She was recruited by uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton to write a, 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 a portion of Stanton's Women's Bible, which was an effort to push back against the patriarchal use of scripture. And, and Frances Willard wrote a dramatically interesting letter. She said, Yes, there have been many abuses of the Bible, but the place that I have come to, to occupy, the activities I have come to, to give myself to, were never possible in any land where the Bible had not exerted a great effect. In other words, she was recruited to write an essay showing how terrible the Bible was for women, and she said, yes, there have been abuses, but there's been no place where women have had the chance to stand in society where the scriptures had not been widely distributed, and she in effect was saying, in a Protestant way where ordinary men and women could have access to them. Francis Willard illustrated evangelical Christianity at its best. I've recently had occasion to um, study some about the remarkable political career of Mark Hatfield. So I'll come to the northwest of the United States. You have to do some kind of northwest of the United States history. Two-term governor of Oregon, as many of you know, before serving 30 years in the Senate of the United States, passed away six or seven years ago. Mark Hatfield's introduction to public life came, in essence, during his time during World War II when he was in the Navy in the Pacific and had experiences that uh, underscored for him the dramatic uh, damage and violence that warfare could do. A, a month after Hiroshima, he was on the ground in J Japan and, and saw the devastation that the atomic bomb could, could wreck. A little bit later, he was in Vietnam picking up uh, uh, remnants of the nationalist Chinese army that had been decimated by the Japanese and again saw the utter devastation that warfare could uh, cause. As a Republican in Congress, he was the first major Republican and one of the first leaders of any kind to come out against the Vietnam War for the same reasons that he had reacted so powerfully against the death and destruction of the, the uh, Second World War. Later, the Republican, Mark Hatfield, teamed with the Democrat, Senator Ted Kennedy, to promote nuclear reduction with the USSR. He was an early Republican proponent during his time in Oregon of anti-discrimination laws. In 1995, he was a lone Republican to vote against a balanced budget amendment that Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich wanted to add to the US Constitution. And his reason was because a balanced budget amendment might make it harder to have federal money go for medical research and medical care for those who needed it at most. After he made that vote, the only Republican in the Senate to vote against the, the, the measure, younger senators said, he's been the chairman of the Senate Appropriation Committee. We've got to strip him of this chairmanship. He's been disloyal. Older Republican senators said, no, he made a mistake in that vote, but we respect him for his integrity, and we need to keep him as chairman. 
the, the, the small evangelical group of evangelicals I was with in Washington that was privileged to meet with uh, President Clinton and led me to write up a huge long manuscript met with Senator Hadfield the night before. And the leaders of our group said, well, you're going to talk to the president. You probably should hear from somebody who's been around and knows what he's doing. So Hatfield came, wonderfully down-to-earth guy. He said, now, there's one really important thing you've got to remember when you talk to the president of the United States. When he got up in this morning, he put his pants on one leg at a time, just like you did. And that was his advice. Basically, treat him as an ordinary human being. He was concerned in his day about political partisanship supplanting Christian faith as the most basic loyalty. And he, he wrote at one occasion, what I'm really concerned about is the impact that partisanship is having on the cause of Christ. That somehow I'm going to come into a relationship with Christ by agreeing to a particular political agenda. That is not the key to salvation in the biblical teaching. Mark Hatfield exemplified American evangelical Christianity at its best. Evangelical Christianity also inspired the main characters described in a forthcoming book by my Wheaton colleague, Catherine Long. The book is called God in the Rainforest. It'll be out too late for Christmas giving, but January. It tells the story of what happened in Ecuador after the five young missionaries were killed in 1956. Uh, many of you will know this story. The, the young men were there and trying to make contact with a group that at the time was called the Auka. Auka is actually a pejorative word from the Wau tribe. And, and as they were making contact, they were speared to death. The book that my colleague Catherine Long has written focuses on the, the women missionaries who returned to the Wau tribes after these deaths. And for a period of 30, 40, 50 years, day in, day out, week in, week out, worked to translate the Bible, worked to provide basic medical care, worked to broker the Wau tribal contacts with Ecuadorian government, protected the Wau people when oil interests wanted to uh, advance into the Amazon rainforest. The book will show that these missionary ladies mostly made some mistakes, uh, some pretty bad mistakes, but it'll also show that given the range of possibilities oil companies, um, Quechua Indians who wanted economic exploitation of the Wau tribe, Ecuadorian government that was mostly indifferent to the tribal peoples in the Amazonian jungle. Compared to what was possible in those days, these missionary ladies exhibited an, an altruistic love, concern, and dedication of an extraordinary sort. This was evangelical Christianity at its best. Then the last incident I'll, I'll talk about tonight is uh, concerning the evangelical convictions that made my personal friend John Jelkin a godsend to humble believers in Latin America and the Philippines. Way back at the dawn of time, John and I were on the Wheaton College basketball team. I had the best seat in the house. He was a pretty good player. <laughs> he went to seminary and then for a few years was a missionary in uh, Latin America in Colombia. During that time, he, he uh, was uh, impressed. This was just the 1970s, so a slower movement than what has taken place later. He was impressed by the number of people being evangelized positively, usually at that time out of Catholic backgrounds, who were very thirsty for the scriptures and who were in good evangelical fashion acting, setting up churches, organizing religious movements, really without any training at all. He had to come back to the United States because of, uh, of a situation in his family. And when he did, he set up an, instant, uh, an organization called Help for Christian Nationals, which for 40 years has been organizing three-day Bible training seminars, some in the Philippines, mostly in Latin America, for indigenous workers. Oftentimes, people newly converted, men, women, young people, last uh, 10 or 15 years, quite a few Catholics, including some Catholic priests, a three-day seminar with the Thompson Chain Reference Bible in Spanish, or in Portuguese if they're in Brazil, trying to help people organize a simple sermon, put together uh, the, the basics of, of Christian instruction from, from the scriptures. Over time, he's been able to recruit others who, who've gone on to do some of the same things. Uh, 
trying to remain completely indifferent or completely oblivious to the political circumstances of the various places they worked, some of which were pretty dire, but focusing on bringing the message of the scriptures, the liberating power of Christ in the Bible to these people. Very recently, I received a letter from John that explained about the activities of one of the, the, the other people. Now he's trained to, to lead these seminars, and this was part of the letter. Last month, one of our Colombian teachers was invited into a large 11,000 inmate Bogota prison, La Modela. 100 prisoners were given permission to study the Bible for five straight days. They were terrorists, drug dealers, attorneys, and businessmen. <laughs> there was even a convicted pastor. All now follow Jesus. They evangelize and lead weekly Bible study groups inside this filthy, dangerous, and overcrowded prison. The teacher who went with his team, Pastor Gilbert Venegas, wrote, Brother John, at graduation, when they received their own Bibles, the men were singing, shouting, crying, and jumping for joy. Many were on their knees in gratitude to Jesus. They had experienced their freedom in Christ. They had delighted in God's word, and they knew in a fresh way the beauty of the fullness of the Good Shepherd that fills people with comfort and hope. John Jalkin and his organization, Help for Christian Nationals, have received very little publicity, but to me, they represent American evangelical Christians at their best. So, in trying to explain why American evangelicals for better deserves at least as much attention as American evangelicals for worse, I've been much more affected by examples than by arguments. The intensely personal character of evangelical religion has made American evangelicalism intellectually fragile and politically flighty. But remembering that African Americans can be evangelicals too, and also Korean Americans, Hispanic Americans, Vietnamese Americans, Catholic Americans, and more, is a good first step to taking up the challenge of evaluating American evangelicals for better or for worse. But the most important thing is to remember where the name comes from. Evangelical means the gospel, the message of God's grace offered to those who know they need a redeemer. That message, in the end, establishes the only reliable standard against which to measure whether American evangelicals, indeed all people, should be regarded as existing for better or for worse.